What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I don't know why he came all the way up here. There's nothing left. There are people out there. People worth saving. 2018's A Quiet Place was one of the surprise hits of that year. Now the sequel, after a year delay, has come to theaters. Also in theaters after a year delay, Josh, and way more significantly, us. Yeah, this was your first trip back in a while. Can't wait to hear about that. This week, we've got a review of A Quiet Place Part 2, and we revisit a top five that, Adam, you and Michael Phillips shared, along with your review of its predecessor, Quiet Movie Scenes. It's a good one. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. So back in 2018, Josh... Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune and I reviewed A Quiet Place. We both liked it. You were off shilling for your book somewhere, I'm guessing. (laughs) Um, If I remember correctly, half shilling. I think that was an Ebert Interruptus week Mm. because I can remember actually sneaking away from the Conference on World Affairs with Michael J. Casey, Boulder Weekly Film Critic, to see A Quiet Place. They was getting so much good word of mouth, kind mm-hmm. of this surprise hit, and we thought, we gotta we gotta catch this, this movie, and so we did. I liked it quite a bit, too. Movies as Prayers, by the way, still available in all the finest bookstores. Also on that show, Michael and I shared our top five quiet scenes, and now that bill has come due for you, Josh. Are you going to have any picks that could possibly rival ours? Because if listeners don't remember that list, it's a formidable one. It's good. I mean, yeah, of course I have a few better choices. Mm. I mean, that's to be expected. I also, Adam, have one. We're going to have one overlap, even though I had so much opportunity to avoid it. You, you made a great pick that I just have to share. So we'll get to that. Okay, fantastic. The rare Adam, Josh, crossover, the rare Josh compliment on one of my top five (laughs) picks. That top five, including Josh's picks and more later in the show. But first, when a movie ends as brilliantly as A Quiet Place did, you kind of wish they didn't bother with a sequel. Was A Quiet Place Part 2 a mistake? It's okay, baby. It's okay. Mom. I suppose that could be my simple question to you, Adam. Was A Quiet Place Part 2 a mistake? But I want to dig into something a bit more specific about the movie, directed as before by John Krasinski, who does show up briefly in the prologue. That opening section is a flashback sequence set on the day that the terrorizing creatures, who hunt only by sound, first showed up in the quaint American town where Krasinski's Lee Abbott runs a farm. Alongside his wife, Evelyn, played by Emily Blunt, daughter, Regan, played by Millicent Simmons, and son, Marcus, played by Noah Jupe. After some legit scares in that flashback, we jump ahead to pick up pretty much where the first film left off. And yes, we are going to spoil that first film. We won't spoil part two, but if you haven't seen 
part one yet and are still listening to this. Spoilers ahead. So here's where we pick up. Lee dead, farm destroyed, Evelyn, Regan, and Marcus, along with Evelyn's newborn baby, no less, they need to find a new place to quietly survive. I revisited 2018's A Quiet Place just recently, Adam, and while it held up, it did strike me this time as something of a survivalist father's self-glorifying fantasy. And even though the sequel is largely without Krasinski's Lee, his spirit hovers over the film. I think this is especially the case when his surviving family members meet a former neighbor, Emmett. Played by Killian Murphy, let's just say Emmett hasn't exactly risen to the manly occasion in the wake of the monster invasion. Adam, you're a father. I don't think I'd call you someone who has survivalist tendencies, but still, deep love for your kids and certainly a protective streak is part of that. Uh Did A Quiet Place Part 2 push your dad buttons? After these two movies, are you now ready to do what it takes for your family when the inevitable (laughs) apocalypse arrives? Grew up in small town Iowa. Don't want to spend any time on a farm if I can avoid it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But- To answer your question, oh, I'll give it everything I've got. I feel like I said this during a recent top five. Maybe it was top five movie moms. I said it during the Quiet Place one review. Really, the fundamental purpose of a parent is to protect your kids. That is your burden. The terrible part for my family is that I have very little to give. (laughs) The good part is that Sarah is more than capable of handling the Krasinski and the blunt roles. So we'll be fine for, I'm going to say, at least a month in the apocalypse, Josh. That's pretty good. Yeah, it just won't be in any way because of me. And isn't that what happens every time you watch one of these dystopian visions? You think, that guy is so resourceful. He's so tough. He's so manly. Did he know how to do all of that stuff already? There is an idealized version of masculinity we get oftentimes in these films. And I am not that. And Krasinski, who is, as you noted, only in this movie briefly, he has that swagger here right from the beginning. And I did, for the record, get very confused when this movie opened. As you know, I usually go into films having not read anything, not watching any trailers. And I thought, is this a prequel? Is is Krasinski going to be in the, the whole movie? No, it is just a prologue that I suppose served a purpose in that it introduced us to Killian Murphy's character Emmett, but mostly yeah. just seemed like an excuse for Krasinski to be in the movie, one, and to flex some action filmmaking muscles as a director, right? This is a huge set piece. But when we meet him, he pulls up in his pickup truck And he kind of struts into the little town store and he buys a bunch of oranges. And then he goes to the baseball diamond where his son is playing and is about to hit. And he takes out one of the oranges on the bleachers and this big knife, this very manly knife. And (laughs) and he cuts the orange open because that's how we all eat oranges. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The movie's approach to masculinity isn't a major point for me, positive or negative, with this film. So I can't wait to hear more about your take on it. I'll say that Blunt, unfortunately, seems somewhat sidelined here. But the payoff of the film, the emotional arcs of the movie, are owned by the kids. And I don't mind that. Noah Jupe and Millicent Simmons, both very good. Simmons, I'd say sensational, as she was in the first one. Also loved her in Todd Haynes' Wonderstruck. Their big moments... I'll say this, Josh, without 
spoiling anything, are maybe a tad bloodier and bloodthirsty than maybe they needed to be. But that is countered by something that reminded me actually of Cormac McCarthy's The Road, the book and the the John Hillcoat movie with Viggo Mortensen, which is that when Reagan is being compared to or comparing herself to her father or when she's comparing Emmett to her father, it's not really a matter of strength or talent with tools or guns or knives. That's the question. I think it's his sense of hope or the lack thereof and his humanity. There's something about Lee in the first movie that is uncompromising. He never betrays who he is and what he believes in, even if the circumstances might justify it. And I'll offer that that spirit doesn't seem to me particularly masculine or feminine. There's, yeah, that opening prologue, of course it's there so Krasinski can get on screen. And I was equally confused Mm -hmm. (laughs) thinking, oh, is he going to be in this whole thing? Um, But And it's really well done. I mean, this shows that he does have a lot of skill in in terms of not only an action, but a suspense director. He has a patience, uh, knows where to put the camera and how long to leave it there. Also, the effects crew that he has here, there is a great shot of one of these creatures emerging unexpectedly from the windshield of a bus that is careening out of control down the street. I mean, it's, it's a really intense, well-done action sequence. So it serves that purpose, but I think it also does intend to serve a purpose. As you said, Killian Murphy showing up, Emmett, we start to get a sense of who he is before we will meet him later in this whole idea of masculinity that the movie is playing with that really did fascinate me. You mentioned it, Marcus, the son, Noah Jupe, we see him at Little League and right away, we see that he's up to bat and he is terrified yes. of being hit by a pitch. And let, let me just say, like, I, I'm no survivalist father either, probably because I was the kid terrified of being hit by a pitch and hated Little League. Yeah. Okay? And who needs so all I, his mother's assurance. I totally get father's. Yes, I totally get that um, that experience, the emotional notes that it's hitting. But the movie is also planting that seed because if you think back to Marcus as a character in the first film, he was very much afraid and very sickly even. The mm-hmm. op- great opening scene there, they're going to the pharmacy because he is seriously ill and they're trying to find antibiotics or something for him. So, so Marcus has been in two films now and especially here presented as – this sickly, fearful presence. Um, And I just think that's interesting because the movie makes a point of showing Marcus progressing to become a quote-unquote man in what happens when Mm -hmm. we flash forward ahead. And let me say right here, I'm, I'm not offering these observations as a critique, where, as you said, whether it's a positive or a negative, I just find it really interesting that for two films now, this seems to be something that Krasinski, maybe his co-writers, whatever, it, that these movies are very much interested in. Um, maybe, bottom line, I wish they had interrogated those um, attitudes a little bit more just to make it more interesting. But it's definitely something we see because Marcus gets, and I don't want to spoil it here, but if we jump all the way to the end, Marcus definitely gets... Um, a moment where he absolves himself of such weakness. Um, it's also a moment that very much repeats the finale of the first film. I think that's maybe a, a critique of this movie is that it does do a little bit more repeating that w- than we might like. But we do watch Marcus. Think about the other moment in this one where he he steps into the bear trap and it's his, you know, painful screams. No, I won't. I won't <laughs> think about it. 
that attract the creatures, right? Yeah. So, and it, it's almost like I, I can think of the image of of Emily Blunt having to cover his mouth, and it, and it's kind of like this man up image. You know, you're you're gonna. Unlike your father, you're going to cost us here. Um, and so that's just his character art. And I think Killian Murphy's Emmett is on the same trajectory. When they first meet him, when they finally find him at this abandoned factory, he's holed up all by himself. He's created this safe house. Uh, he immediately tells them, you know, I don't have enough supplies here. You're going to have to move on. Um, and I love the touch where Evelyn demands that he pull the bandana down and says something like, show me your face. Right. I think at that point, she doesn't completely recognize him, but she thinks she does. Mm -hmm. And then she and um, Reagan both kind of give him this speech at different times about how here's what my father would have done mm -hmm. in this situation. And you're not doing it. There's this radio signal he's detected. He's not going to go explore for survivors. And they want to. That's what their father would have done. And again, I'm not holding this against the film because I think it's interesting that Reagan is the one who decides to go out and seek the signal. Um, so she is. So here we have some gender, you know, we do switching, yeah. which I think is a strength. That was also a strength of the first film, too, in the final moments. Um, so, yeah, it's just, again, this observation where um, it's a preoccupation of these movies. That is that is interesting to me. Um, in some areas, it's a strength where it allows characters to surprise us. And in some areas, you're kind of like, wow, this is really traditional, you know, falling along traditional gender roles in a way that seems a little bit outdated. Um, but back to, you know, when, when Reagan does head out on her own, I love that sequence the most because, mm -hmm. as you said, Millicent Simmons so good in this movie that gives her a chance to become essentially an action star mm -hmm. and reagan is in the, is in this interesting position right where um her her hearing impairment makes her almost more susceptible to the creatures because she can't hear the noises she makes she can't hear them coming yet she has the resolve and the bravery to go out anyway and she encounters this abandoned train it's a fantastic sequence again krasinski's skills as a director suspense director here are um you know really evident and simmons just has this combination of resolve and vulnerability that makes it thrilling i wish there was more of just her yeah you're right you're right about evelyn um you know getting set aside when blunt is so good as she was in the first film but i could have used even more of just reagan on her own and seeing her adventure in this world yeah no i agree with you completely and i think the only kind of distinction i'm making and i'm not even sure if it's a distinction from what you're saying with regard to emmett's character is not that he's being judged it seems to me because he's not manly enough in a traditional sense meaning he's not brave enough or that he's not tough enough because let's face it he's also survived <laughs> and he also knows how to handle a gun and it's not as if to me he is actually really fearful of what might happen to him personally it's just that he's given up he has given up he has no hope he's not willing to try millicent simmons is willing literally to die trying if that's what it takes. That's the legacy of her father is that is that sense of hope, that sense of humanity. He's willing to just continue to live by himself and just kind of wait it out and die. And that's the the big difference in what she ultimately kind of instills and infuses in him. But you talk about his skill, Krasinski's as a filmmaker, and there are definitely some sequences where I agree with you, including that train sequence. But there's also an element here for me, Josh, of the skill or the desire to showcase that skill 
overtaking the whole movie. And mm. if you read Sam's quote in our newsletter this week, Sam, our producer, he said that first he hasn't even made it through the first Quiet Place because he's not generally a fan of kids in peril movies. And I totally get that. But then he also said, does this happen to you sometimes? For whatever reason, you can only see the Matrix version of a movie, the ones and zeros that make up the plot. And as soon as I read that, I had just seen the movie the night before. And I sent him a note right away in Slack and told him that he shouldn't even try to bother then with A Quiet Place 2 because all I could think about watching A Quiet Place 2 was Mark Maron's go-to jab on the WTF podcast whenever he's trying to express what he doesn't appreciate about certain comics who are the opposite of him. And it's some version of it's like math. These comics are doing math on stage. There's a precision to it, a formula to it. This plus this equals this punchline, laugh, beat, whatever it is. It's not it's not raw enough. It's not vulnerable enough. It's not honest and authentic enough. And ironically, I went back to my notes from my review of the first one, and I referenced math to praise it because I said that Krasinski does a lot of letting the audience do the math where you see the inevitable moment that's coming. And now there's just kind of the dread of the characters figuring out the answer and doing the math for themselves. But this time, Josh, I'm telling you, and it was early on, even in that opening set piece, all I could see were the ones and zeros rather than suspenseful foreshadowing. Everything felt very predictable and telegraphed. It's so tightly crafted that the filmmaking seems to me, for lack of a better word, almost oppressive. You know, we joked, I think a week ago on the show, that Krasinski called it a quiet place part two, like the Godfather part two, to try to put it on that level. But to me, it's like Krasinski figured that if the pinnacle of filmmaking is the baptism sequence of the Godfather at the end of that movie, which to be fair, he might be right then maybe he thought, if I just employed that cross-cutting technique for an entire movie, then maybe it will somehow be even better than The Godfather. And it's it's not. I actually, I found that, that technique overused and really heavy-handed. And the byproduct of that precision is that you then start really paying attention to how calculated everything is, which opens up questions about character actions and decisions and there are some really dumb ones here that you realize only need to occur for the plot. I mean, I'll just say I wrote in my notes actually twice. Why wait? And I'll just leave it at that. If you've seen the movie, you probably know what I'm referring to. Why wait? There were a lot of moments like that, but I think it all ties back to that that precision. As I said, the kind of overly calculated nature of the filmmaking. I think the area, the moment where that was a problem for me was the finale. Um, mm -hmm. which, again, is almost a beat-for-beat -beat recreation of the finale of the first film, involving different characters and a somewhat different scenario. But that's where I can see, another, you know, math is made of formulas, right? And so that is where I can see the formula, be, formula being employed. I can't say the precision bothered me previously in the way it did you. I mean, suspense does require precision. It, it, we're, you know, it, it's this magic act of balancing surprise, chaos, as the prologue does, with filmmaking precision. And I think that is what I'm impressed that Krasinski is so good at, there is an extended, it's not even a parallel sequence. There's three actions going on yeah. in parallel to each other, he right? That you're that talking twice. about. Yeah, he does it yeah, twice. Yeah. And, 
and it's it's um it, i it didn't bother me as much and it, what also didn't bother me is you're right if you start asking questions about this movie <laughs> you're not going to stop mm-hmm. and i think that's true, maybe not to the same degree, but it is true of the first film as well, especially as you get into the Abbott's whole, you know, farm to table survival system yeah. they've set up, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's like there are so many questions you would ask about that. So to a degree and in a movie like this, you just have to buy into the scenario. It was probably easier to buy in for the first film than it is here. Yes. Um, uh, so I would I would give you that. I would advise people not to start asking those questions, um, <laughs> and and you'll have a better time. And I don't feel like again in this genre that's that's too much like giving a movie a pass. Uh, you know, I think that's kind of part of the deal. Uh, but there are certainly some character decisions. I can see what you're um, saying. There is a sequence, a mini sequence that I didn't think of the road, but you're absolutely right. That is totally like a short film version of the road yeah, yeah that there are a lot of questions you could ask there or or how that even works uh but but for me i don't know mm-hmm. I, I i was okay with it i think the other thing that i really liked about this and it's an odd thing to say of a sequel and maybe you shouldn't say it of a sequel but it was so refreshing to be in an imagined universe all its own you know just even even as a sequel just to be Back in a place that surprised me with its ideas. And you and Michael probably cited all the films that influenced A Quiet Place, right? It's not like this is the first film to ever think of some of these concepts. But still, new characters, new setting, new world, relatively new situation. It's not, uh, you know... a part of some larger franchise. And I still felt that refreshment while seeing part two. Now... Will I with part three or has it at that point kind of crossed the line and we need another new idea? I don't know. Maybe it's also because I just endured Cruella this week. And it's oh, just an example of an example of, you know, where we are so often at the movies these days in, in places that are just oppressing us to use mm-hmm. that word with their familiarity. Um, but yeah, the uniqueness of a quiet place still helps it to stand apart for me. You know, you can choose which movies you watch and don't watch, right? Well, I mean, it's it's kind of my job. You know it's a job, Adam, right? I mean, was anyone assigning you Cruella, though? Yeah, I assigned myself. <laughs> that's, that's the choice I'm referring to, Josh. No, I hear what you're saying, and I think, again, having gone into this movie with no sense of where it was picking up, and it's picking up literally right where the last movie ended, other than the prologue, I really wasn't sure where they were going to go with these characters, and for some reasons I already tried to articulate, I didn't have those same issues as far as questioning the machinations of the first movie. I think it's because I really just enjoyed these characters so much and enjoyed spending time with them. And this time, as I said, I was really focused on those mechanics and the the decisions they were making because of the filmmaking. But the fact that Krasinski found a way in that isn't just about whether or not they're going to kill the creatures it's really about the family and their dynamic and those character arcs and that he made it about the kids i do think was refreshing to echo what you said now i don't know if you're aware of this or not if you saw the news but there is definitely going to be a quiet place three did you see who the director is and the writer Uh, i didn't know this is new to me who breaking news here at least to josh and this will be unfair because your brain at the time of recording, like mine, is pretty well mush, so you're probably not going to place it. But let me just say, think about a filmmaker 
who's made maybe about four or five films, somewhere in there, little more experienced than Krasinski, male filmmaker, whose work we have talked about and praised on the show, even had a movie that was a Golden Brick finalist, think a listener's choice, winner, and who makes movies fundamentally about families. And will be very good for this material. Is anyone coming to mind? Uh, Jeff Nichols. Wow. I take back everything I said about your brain being mush because <laughs> you nailed it. And I, being a Jeff Nichols fan, I welcome that news because obviously I think he's a really good director. As I just suggested, I think he's perfect for the material. And I do think he's just enough of a craftsman that I don't think you're probably going to see a dramatic difference in approach or a lot of the same things that do work about the first two films will be carried over to the third, but maybe he will actually allow just a little bit more breathing room for the characters than Krasinski did in this one. And maybe he'll allow it to be just a little bit messier, not, not quite so tidy, Josh. Well, he's definitely going to continue the exploration of masculinity. I mean, that is all over his other movies and could possibly be what attracted him to this project perhaps hey where where is this mind of mine when we're doing trivia spotting i mean that that was like come on i mean i'm a a disaster on trivia good hints but yeah no you pulled it out i am i am really impressed i'll give a nod to one really subtle moment i liked and it's entirely possible that this is just a trick of my own brain and i'm an idiot and it wasn't something that krasinski intended but The kind of subtle moments I like in this film can be found in a fairly early scene where Millicent Simmons, Reagan, has just departed, has left on her mission. And Emily Blunt, looking very distressed, looks off frame. And then the cut is to a kid laying on the floor, sleeping, but you can't tell who it is from the shot. And in that moment, I assume, because it's Blunt having just looked at that kid, that it's her son who's recovering from that wound. Except then we realize as the kid wakes up that it's her daughter who is waking up in a completely different physical space. But there's there's a way that kind of just with that that edit that it links them together with one cut links them together in a way that was was very potent. So, again, I, I do have some appreciation for Krasinski as a filmmaker. I am one of those people who definitely appreciated the first quiet place significantly more than this one. Yeah, I'm definitely with you there. And I'll just close with an addition to Adam's list of unforgivable movie acts with jewelry. If you recall our virtual watch of Top Gun, I noted how distressing it still is that Maverick just takes Goose's dog tags, <laughs> yes. throws them into the ocean, not thinking at all about Goose's son who might want those someday. How about Blunt in a scene in this film taking her wedding ring off and just... Just leaving it because because she doesn't have any mm, kids who might mm. want that artifact. I'm just saying. It was an interesting touch. It made somewhat sense in the fact that she puts it at what has become a yes. family shrine. Um, and so I think, you know, going back to the family idea, mm. that's what they were going for there. But, yeah, it, it seemed like one of those decisions you well, might second guess. I'm, I'm just second guessing it because in my world, those are exactly the things you want to hang on to. The tightest that is not the world of A Quiet Place Part 2, which is currently playing in wide release. Yes, in theaters, everywhere. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. 
Well, I was completely silent, not just quiet. Back when Adam and Michael Phillips shared their top five quiet scenes back in 2018, we'll revisit that list and I'll quickly chime in with a few picks when we come back. Plus the results of the film spotting poll, listeners choose the one summer 2021 movie they most want to see. Stay with us. Kentucky is cold country, where men work long hours for short wages, where poverty, black lung, and needless disaster are facts of life. In 1973, the men voted to join the United Mine Workers Union. The company refused to sign the contract, and so began the Battle of Harlan County, USA. Which side are you on? I guess if we just played a clip from it, and we're talking about it, that it means it's going to happen on next week's show. We're going to get back to our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series with Barbara Koppel's Oscar-winning documentary, Harlan County, USA. It's one of my very favorite docs, but it is a blind spot for you, Josh. It's possible that the only Koppel film I've seen is Miss Sharon Jones, which was great. So I've got a lot of work to do. Glad that I can get started here with Harlan County. Barbara Koppel, a fairly recent guest here on Film Spotting, kind of early, I think, into the pandemic. She actually called into the show. We talked about her most recent documentary, Desert One. I, of course, did have to sneak in a few questions about Harlan County, USA, because I think it's so good. And I don't know the answer to this question, Josh. Maybe there's a Film Spotting historian out there who will either know it or will be able to do the legwork. But even though we don't call the 7 from 76 series a marathon, it is not technically one of our over 40 marathons we've done going back to the first year of the show, 2005. Harlan County is among the select few, maybe the only movie that has been part of two series. Watched first when it was a blind spot for both myself and then co-host, now producer Sam Van Hallgren. And now, of course, as part of this Best Year Ever series, and it's absolutely a movie that deserves that treatment. I bet there's another one. It just seems like there, there has to be. There's got to be at least one. I, it doesn't. Nothing's coming to mind right now, though. No, me either. Also, next week, we'll have a review of one of the titles that came up on our summer movie preview. It's Christian Petzold's Undine. Petzold, the acclaimed director of 2014's Phoenix and 2018's Transit, both of which we reviewed very positively on the show. Undine actually comes to theaters next weekend. Harlan County, USA is available currently on the Criterion channel, also on HBO Max. And of course, we love to plug your local library, give it a shot, or maybe get it through interlibrary loan. Yeah, my copy is sitting there at the library. I got to get over there, but I didn't realize it's on Criterion too. So two easy ways for me to see it. All right. Also on next week's show, Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt in case you missed it. Here's a bit of our last massacre. I interrupted from the top. Hero of Men, go. Uh, uh, I am. Sorry, sorry, sorry. And women, men and women, both, all, not a guy, girl thing. You know, Doyle is the hero to all. You're doing great. 
fair amount of entries so far, Josh. There are a lot of dads and moms out there who are repeatedly watching this movie with their children the way I watched Finding Nemo and mm. a few other animated films with my kids. So another clue for people. Another clue. There. Yes. yes. There you go. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title, along with your name and location, to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, May 31st. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. Over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's part one of their Window Watchers pairing. They've got the new woman in the window paired with a movie that I understand it owes quite a lot to. And it's not just the fact that it has window in its title. It's Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window, a movie that, Josh, you have been on record as saying is maybe your favorite film of all time. Does this mean you're also going to watch Woman in the Window? I mean, I'm going to have to now. I hate missing episodes of Next Picture Show. And I know Woman in the Window hasn't been, you know, too kindly received. But yeah, this might be the final push. You got to have an answer to that question, Adam. I mean, especially when when I'm out like doing a talk or something, if the Q&A, mm -hmm. you always get, what's your favorite movie of all time? And I figure like this, it could be true. It might be Rear Window. It's probably mm -hmm. true, but it's also like a safe. Who's going to argue with you, right? right. Do, do you have a go-to? Do you have a kind yeah, of a safe I, choice for that? I get more pushback when I say Pitch Perfect. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm sorry for you, Adam. The next picture show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of the great podcast, The Next Picture Show, post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. More info at nextpictureshow.net. One way you can support us here on Film Spotting is to join the Film Spotting family on Patreon. A mere $5 a month gets you a host of benefits, including somewhat early show downloads we get the show done as fast as we can and add free episodes via a dedicated rss feed the big benefits though a monthly bonus episode and we haven't yet talked about it but it's a 70s blind spotting robert altman edition i didn't feel like our listeners could steer us wrong whether they voted for three women mash or california split and even though i haven't seen california split i'm gonna say they didn't steer us wrong here josh I mean, it's a doozy. I'm still not sure if I actually watched Three Women or I yeah. just ate Did you something, dream it? ate something and, and had a very unusual dream. So mm -hmm. we'll we'll hash that out in bonus. We will. You also have the opportunity to partake in our monthly trivia spotting. Josh, somehow we have managed to latch on to a Zoom event that it seems our listeners and the participants from this show, myself, you, Sam. Our beloved production assistant, Kat Sullivan, joins us oftentimes. Michael Phillips has joined us a few times. We found something that's on Zoom that we actually want to continue post-pandemic. That's how fun trivia spotting is. And this one is our 11th, so we're calling it This Trivia Spotting Goes to 11. It's actually Saturday, June 5th. Once again, the player tickets completely sold out. We do have a few spectator tickets left for our family members. And do we have Michael returning for this one? Different different alas, team leaders, team captains? Alas, Michael is not going to be able to join us. Again, he did he did promise July and August he's That's open. Right. We will That's see. Right. We will see. Very busy man Michael Phillips is, but we will have some great returning captains. And as always, we will have at least a couple new captains again that available to our family members exclusively annual memberships now available 
You can pay for the year, get a 10% discount, basically get a little more than a month free, get access to all of those perks, patreon.com slash filmspotting. King James. Welcome to the Space James. Well, Sam does know how to troll me, doesn't he? When he, he picks a clip from Space Jam, A New Legacy. Now, when I looked at this document earlier today, Josh, it did occur to me that I could pull my own troll job on Sam and just reference any other clip from any other movie I wanted to play. Ooh. And then what's he going to do? He'd be forced to put that audio in the show. He'd be very, very mad at you. So, Adam, are, are we going to go, can I take you to a Cruella Space Jam, A New Legacy double feature? Huh? Is that is that a choice you, you want to make? No, no, it's not at all. You would really have to drag me kicking and screaming. Space Jam, A New Legacy, one of the options we gave you in the film spotting poll a couple of weeks ago. I'm not sure why. Yes, I'm a hater. I've never seen the original. The question, you can only see one film this summer. Which one is it, Josh? The options we gave you were A Quiet Place Part 2. I think these are in chronological order of release date. A Quiet Place Part 2, In the Heights, F9, Marvel's Black Widow, David Lowry's The Green Knight, Candyman, I only said it once, Space Jam, A New Legacy, or if you're not excited by any of those, you could vote other and write in your pick, Josh, how did it come out? Well, very disappointed in the 90s, kids. I mean, Space Jam here in Bunch last of Team place, Adams. Bunch of Team Adams listening to the show. 2%. 2%. I mean, it came in behind other other got 3%. So yeah, I don't, I don't think we're going to be reviewing Space Jam on this show. F9 receives 6% of the vote. Candyman, 10%. A Quiet Place Part 2, 11%. Marvel's Black Widow, 12%. And then a jump here to the top two in our poll. In the Heights, perhaps surprisingly, second place with 23% of the vote. That means that David Lowry's The Green Knight won it with 33%. You know, we have respect for F9. We've got love for Dom and crew. And I know some of our listeners do too, but man, 6% in a summer movie preview poll, but David Lowry's The Green Knight takes it with a third of the vote. Those are our listeners, Josh. Well, is it is it maybe the originality thing that, yeah. you know, I was talking about with A Quiet Place? Let, let, let's see here. Is that the only original property, whatever you want to call it, IP of the options. I guess it depends how you define In the Heights, you know, a Broadway musical. So um, obviously existed in some form. I think I think The Green Knight is. Now it's Arthurian legend it's playing mm -hmm. with. So it's not like completely unique, but compared to the rest of this stuff, could that be part of it? This is, this is the only Maybe. thing that feels fresh. Well, let's see what our snobs, I mean, our listeners had to say about this poll. Aaron Teachman in L.A., I do miss capital S spectacle. And after getting vaccinated, I look forward to indulging again. But if you make me pick one film to see in a theater this summer, let it be one that takes me places I never dreamed I could go. Let it be David Lowry's The Green Knight featuring the incredibly versatile Dev Patel. Aaron, I call foul. I give you cars in space. <laughs> did you think did you think you could go there? Isn't there this Moonraker 
have a car? Does James Bond drive around in a space car in that one? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, we got to do our Bond marathon for me to see Moonraker. I was very young when I saw that. My memory's hazy. Here's Adam H. in Memphis. The Green Knight was one of my most anticipated films of 2020, so it easily has my vote. Director David Lowry has earned a lot of goodwill in my book after a ghost story. If anybody can adapt a 14th century poem and turn it into a film both pensive and epic, it's Lowry. So there you mm. go. It, it's not an original idea. Adam, it's, yeah. this is based on a 14th century poem. Right. I mean, come on, Hollywood, come up with something <laughs> fresh. Yeah. Doesn't that count as IP in I your be- book, Josh? I believe 14th so. 14th century poetry? I think Jeff Bezos just bought all of the poetry of the 14th century. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Roger Dotsie says, my initial thought was Black Widow because I'm an unapologetic Marvel fanboy. But then I looked at the list and I just had to pick one of the two that aren't remakes, sequels or franchises. There you go, Josh. So Mm. it came down to In the Heights or The Green Knight. I ultimately had to trust my inner A24 and pick The Green Knight. Here's Trip Burton. There are a lot of good options here, but what I most want is to take the whole family to a movie where everyone in the room is having a blast, where we are laughing and dancing, and where we can all exhale from the feeling of being cooped up together for over a year. I chose In the Heights. Beverly Lieberman says, no question In the Heights. I need entertainment the Lin-Manuel Miranda way. Here's John Newfry. For me, it's between Green Knight and Candyman. And I got to play trivia spotting with Nia DaCosta, so my captain gets my vote. Sound logic. Yeah, fair enough, John. Trevor R. says, I'm sorry, but I watched the Space Jam VHS 50 times during my childhood, and I'm going to see the new one ASAP. I I hope Trevor is okay. Now, Adam, you like to talk about how many times you watch things on HBO. Was there a yeah. title you think you watched 50 times? Start to finish. Oh, yeah. I would say... Start with The Breakfast Club, then maybe go to Vision Quest. Then, 50 times. Yeah, probably. 50 times. Probably, probably. Yeah. And then, you know, throw in the world according to Garp, and it explains a lot about my personality. Were there monsters who hunted by sound in Iowa when you were growing up? You just had to stay quietly in the basement <laughs> with your headphones on watching Pretty much. HBO? Okay, that explains Pretty it. Pretty much. Matthew W. in Dallas has our last comment here. No love for Cruella? That's my pick. There he is. There's the Cruella fan. See, Adam, some mm-hmm. of us like movies. Yeah, yeah. But you didn't like that movie, did you, Josh? Uh, it made me rethink my love for movies. Okay. Thanks to everyone who voted in the poll and left comments. You can hear our picks for the most anticipated summer movies in the form of our top five questions about the summer movie season that really aren't about summer movies at all on last week's show. That's number 826. You can listen at filmspotting.net or wherever you get your podcasts. And now we turn to what will surely go down as one of the great, deeply flawed film spotting polls. Trademark, the new poll looks ahead a couple weeks to our In the Heights review. We're asking, what is the best live action movie musical of the 21st century? A poll question that makes you ask yourself, as we did earlier this week, what is a musical anyway? I think the best questions to solicit answers are the ones that you can't even define, Josh. You know, I didn't even jump into this fray. I saw it happening. I knew it would be disastrous. Sam, you know, this kind of could have been the poll. He could have put up, you know, a bunch of titles and said, which one is a movie musical? And and (laughs) see what people went with. But instead, we are asking, what is the best live action movie musical of the 21st century? And here are the options we gave you. The 2003 Best Picture winner, Chicago. John Cameron Mitchell's Hedwig and the Angry Inch. That's from 2001. Damien Chazelle's La La Land. Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge, another 2001 film. Two options here from John Carney. I don't know. Is this your influence, Adam? 
Maybe. I mean, the whole century. We got to go with two from John Carter. Sam knows what's up. 2007's Once and 2014 Sing Street. Adam Crowd pandering there. Finally, mm-hmm. a couple of films with debatable musical cred, I guess. Oh, more Adam pandering. Pitch Perfect from 2012. This is what happens <laughs> when I don't weigh in on a poll. And uh, excuse then 2018's A Star is Born. We did offer the option of other as we always do. Yeah, RPA, Cat. Got on Twitter and said, well, Sam Van Hallgren woke up today and chose chaos. And pretty much that, that is basically the case. I don't even know which of those really qualify as musicals. Chicago, Hedwig, Moulin Rouge for sure, La La Land. Those are the only ones I feel really confident are musicals. The other ones have a lot of music in them, Josh. And that's the extent of my analysis in terms of which one I like the most. I mean, it's really hard for me to go against Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Love that movie. Love that musical. In fact, I know I've probably said this before, but I'll say it again. My son Holden is actually named Holden Mitchell because of John Cameron Mitchell. I watched Hedwig and the Angry Inch when Sarah was pregnant with Holden and we were looking for a middle name and his name came up on the screen in the end credits. And I said, I really like that name. Okay, there you I, go. Don't, I don't think I had ever heard that. I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm just relieved Mitchell. To hear, I'm relieved to hear Sarah gave it the okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she liked it. So here we are, you know, we're stuck with it 19 years later. But in terms of my favorites, Pitch Perfect, Sing Street Once, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to choose. This is chaos and I'm not choosing between them. Okay, well, um, you know, for me, I, it's out of fashion, but La La Land is my favorite among that bunch. And we were just listening to the soundtrack again the other day. Uh, just great stuff. But I would, you know, consider another option here. I would go with Dancer in the Dark, which I think, you know, is... is was definitely talked about. Should have been included. You know, is definitely closer to what we think of as a musical than some of these titles, mm-hmm. I would say. But I'm not going to, you know, judge on the genre thing. <laughs> but yeah, big fan of Dancer in the Dark. Since you ignored Sam's cries for help in forming the poll, you don't get to Pretty much. question what he included. It's kind of the, the film spotting yeah. madness method. Exactly. In early voting, if you can overlook the questionable title Sam included in the poll, we have a pretty good race here at the top. Moulin Rouge, La La Land, and Once are all within just a couple of votes of each other. Some of the movies that are getting votes in the other category, 2011's The Muppets. Oh, love The it. Greatest Showman has three votes. <laughs> Inside Lewin Davis, one of my favorite films of the past decade. Baby Driver, Almost Famous. Again, I just don't think of Almost Famous as a musical. Rocket Man's in there, Anna and the Apocalypse, Hamilton, Dreamgirls, and Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story. Lots of options. Adam, remind me, have I seen Rocket Man? I don't think you ever watched Rocket Man. I don't think so I, either. I think I watched it for the both of us and I talked about it on the show and I wasn't much of a fan. So yeah, we we got some grief for that. You constantly ripping on Rocket Man and then one of us saw it and I didn't go for it. Oh well. I'll catch we're, up with it someday. We're here I'm sure. to disappoint sometimes. You can vote in our poll and leave a comment, even if it's about Rocket Man at filmspotting.net. It's oh so quiet. It's oh so still. Time for our top five quiet scenes. This is a list that guest Michael Phillips and I did back in 2018, inspired, of course, by the first A Quiet Place. Josh, you didn't get a chance to weigh in back then. We did want to give you that opportunity now. And I joked about it before. 
But just looking at our lists, I didn't re-listen to the episode. I would never do that. And I'm sure Michael was brilliant. I can't speak for me. Maybe I had nothing interesting or insightful to say. That's not a very good tease for what we're about to play. But all I know is on paper, if you go to filmspotting.net and click on lists and find this top five, you got 10 pretty great movies, 10 movies that are pretty tough to go against. So you had the challenge of coming up with at least a few titles, if not a full top five, that you think we overlooked and might be even better. What do you have? I mean, I do like mine better, but that's kind of the point, okay. right? That's how it should work. <laughs> okay, good. But I will also say this this was done really quickly today. Uh, top of my head, not a, not a fully researched or even crowdsourced top five, as I usually like to do. Essentially, I relied on, I, I wrote a chapter in my book, Movies Are Prayers, where I talked about movies as prayers of meditation and contemplation. And there was a whole section there all about silence in, in film. So that came in really handy. I kind of leaned on that for for a lot of my picks. And also, I have one, which I do write about there, Adam, that I share with you that maybe I won't spoil, but I'll, I'll hint at here towards the top of my list. But you want me just to run through them really quickly here, all in a row? Let's do it. Let's okay, do let's it. do it. Number five, After the Storm in Bambi. If you remember that howling, whirling storm sequence in the woods, I love how it's followed as storms often do by this stillness. Everything subsides. The sun starts seeping through the clouds. You can even hear those last plinks of rain dripping into puddles. Love that sequence in Bambi. My number four actually might have been a scene of the year. It, it did get one rap party award from me back in 2012. It's Candlelight Tea in Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. This one I also wanted to put on in honor of Michael. You know, he loves Turkish director Nuri Bilga Ceylan. Yep. And there's a moment in this film where the search party stops for a meal in this rural village at night. The power goes out and all of these men are just kind of gathered together in, a, in the darkness. And a young girl enters the room. She has this tray carrying tea and candles and just incredibly beautiful as this soft light illuminates each man's face. One by one, we kind of get to see their expressions in this very quiet moment. Number three, wandering the wagon trail in Meek's Cutoff. Kelly Reichert, I think of as one of those filmmakers who regularly and very knowingly employs quiet and silence. And when I think about Meek's Cutoff, I, I hear before I see anything, the creaking wagon wheels mm -hmm. or, or that wind kind of over the hills, uh, just emphasizing this party's lostness and their isolation. Number two was a no-brainer for me, the woods at night in the Blair Witch Project. Uh, I mean, how much of that movie's fear comes from making us just sit in silence and first we're teased because we'll hear rocks clacking or a stick breaking. But once we hear that, the later scenes where we don't hear anything are almost more terrifying because we're listening for those things. Uh, it's, it's a lot like A Quiet Place, I think, where, where quiet and silence become these tools of terror. And then my number one is, I'm just going to reference it. It was your number one. It's a great pick, Adam. Let's just say it uses stillness to turn a heist into a, a holy place. And great film, wonderful extended sequence of quiet. You and Michael get to it near the top of your yeah. list. So a great tease there for the list you're about to hear or revisit if you heard it back in 2018. And I'm going to give you another one. And that tease is one of the films that gets mentioned by either myself or Michael is going to be put in the film spotting pantheon at the end of the show. We have not anointed a film in quite a while. 
I can't think of a recent entry into the Pantheon, and we feel like this movie is due. It's a movie, here's a little hint, we both did just see for the first time not too long ago. Definitely deserving of the honor, so look forward to that. And you know, as I think about these lists you're about to hear, unless they come up in an honorable mention at all for myself or Michael, I was suggesting that our list couldn't be top. Josh, you did a great job. You came you came close. I mean, I'll well, give you that. It means the world to me. I know. But you mentioned your book, Movies Are Prayers. There you are shilling again for your book, available now at bookstores everywhere. And it makes me think that Michael and I put together a list, and it sounds like you did too, 5, 10, 15 titles. No reference to Paul Schrader or the transcendental style films that influence him, Brasson. Ozu, Dreyer, so many good, quiet movie scene contenders. Yeah, definitely thought about those. They're they're obviously almost everyone you mentioned is referenced in that in that chapter. So definitely would have been a good direction to go to. Let's jump into that 2018 list with myself and Michael Phillips, and it all starts with a listener voicemail. Hey, film spotting. This is Jeff Milo in Fernell, Michigan, and I'm just looking ahead to some quiet scenes that uh, you'll be talking about, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to talk about this scene. It's the first Mission Impossible's uh, scene of a, a suspended dissension into the, the, the CIA vault. This scene had such an impact, even with just the, the two or three, like, 20-second spans of complete silence. Uh, I fondly recall, with just kind of awe, that uh, for a beautiful moment when I was in the theater seeing this, uh, you could hear a pin drop in a crowded theater. It was just Tom Cruise upside down in a setting that looks like it may be in the same dimension as, as the bedroom from 2001. This scene is, is great because it, it not only makes you stay quiet as a viewer, but uh, for me and for maybe for others, it makes you hold your breath because even you don't want to be responsible for getting Ethan Hunt caught. Great show, guys. Thank you, Jeff. Been a while since we've had a Jeff contribution to the top five. We are sharing our top five quiet scenes, a tie-in, of course, with A Quiet Place. And, Michael, I think there are a lot of ways we could come at this top five, defining what we mean by quiet in this instance. Are we talking about scenes that really have no sound at all, except what might be happening in the scene, no dialogue, no music? Are we talking about scenes that are just free of dialogue and maybe they have some score supplementing it? How did you approach it? Easy to talk about the things I left off. I didn't want to deal with any actual silent films. I didn't really really care about this idea of no dialogue. I think some of the scenes I picked, you know, do have some dialogue. They're just just not the usual conventional amount. I'm often music hypersensitive, so in some cases, films or scenes that are otherwise pretty quiet but have a pretty aggressive musical score don't really fit my definition of yeah, quiet. I'm so with you there. In and out, in and out. So, but that that's basically the parameters. Pretty wide. Yeah. No, I'm with you. No silent movies. I didn't include any movies that had no dialogue entirely, and there aren't that many to choose from, but a movie like The Tribe that came out recently has no dialogue at all. And I also tried to avoid movies that are mostly dialogue-free, movies that rely on visuals way more than they rely Mm -hmm. on sound and on talking amongst the characters. So a movie like The Tree of Life, for example, is one I probably didn't really Hmm. consider. Three Iron, the Kim Ki-duk film, Elephant, even Jacques Tati's Playtime. And then there are these other movies that 
are really about loneliness and isolation. So there's not a lot of talking, whether it might be something like Castaway or All is Lost, the recent Robert Redford film, even the ones that take place in space, 2001, not a lot of talking. Great film, also in the Pantheon, so not eligible. Solaris. Wait, 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 wait. Not eligible? Not eligible. What about for me? It's eligible for you, Michael. Because I'm not, I, I'm You're just. You're not here every week. Well, you I don't have, have to, have, you have have to a, play by our rules. No, I have a day pass to the Pantheon. Right? <laughs> exactly. It's a guest pass. Another film we both love, I know, Nuri Bilga Jalon's Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, I think is, is already a film that relies a lot on silence. So having certain scenes that really stand out because of them. Harder. Yeah, harder to choose. And I, I didn't really pick many of those. Another good example would be something like Brisson's A Man Escaped, right. an entire film based on its sound design and the lack of dialogue. So tried to pick movies that are maybe more traditional in how they use sound and how they incorporate dialogue, but have these really standout moments and scenes. I also just randomly sort of decided I wasn't going to go with any Bergman films. Not that they're <laughs> not fantastic, but there's just so many to choose from the silence. It's were all you, about were the you silence. traumatized by a, by some sort of taciturn Swede in no. your youth? No, I love these films. I okay. love almost all these Bergman films, but I just decided you can't to think throw of them any, out. There's not a single taciturn Swede that traumatized you no, in your youth. No, can't think of one. Final bit of setup here. A great scene that gets at something you talked about when we were reviewing A Quiet Place. Hmm. That's a film that you said, yes, relative to a lot of other films, it's a quiet movie. But to say it's quiet is a little bit misleading because there are a lot of jump scares and there are a lot of loud noises and the score is pretty prominent. Something like the Miller's Crossing Danny Boy scene that we talked about during our no dialogue. Cow discussion. <laughs> right. No dialogue. Yes. But the Danny Boy music obviously everything. You got fire. You got so much noise yeah. there. But it is a scene that's dialogue free. So probably eligible for a list like this. And I certainly did consider it, but didn't actually include it. So with all that said, we're gonna jump in. Your number five quiet scene. Okay. North by Northwest. We're, I'm starting very famous. Okay. Good. The, the crop duster scene. This is a scene where Cary Grant has been told to meet his, you know, this mysterious operative, George Kaplan, who he's been mistaken for, out somewhere two and a half hours outside Chicago in a cornfield in the middle of nowhere in Indiana. Of course, it's actually near Fresno, California, but so be it. So this scene, which is really kind of epic in length because it's like seven, eight minutes, has very little dialogue and has no music by Bernard Herrmann, whose music you tend to notice when it's there. It doesn't have any music from him until the very end of the scene when the plane actually crashes into the oil truck. But for most of that picture, it's a fascinating contrast to the entire rest of the story and the this, this swirl of improbable craziness that Hitchcock and Ernest Lehman, the screenwriter, have cooking up for us. And I just love the way it does things visually that really bring out the lack of conventional sound and music and that yeah, my favorite shot in that whole crop duster scene before the plane actually shows up is Cary Grant on one side of Highway 41 and Malcolm Atterbury playing, you know, this this farmer with five lines of dialogue on the other side of the highway. And that's a beautiful use of widescreen because all you see is desolate, empty mm-hmm. highway and two men looking at each other wondering if they need to strike up a conversation. It's like an epic moment out of Samuel Beckett practically. Yeah. But it's Samuel Beckett if he wrote for Hitchcock. So, <laughs> so I love, I mean, I love, I love the, I've looked at this scene how many times since I saw it for the first time as a teenager, I don't know, a hundred. And it still has a lot of real magic and power and kind of an unsettling black humor to it. That It's Hitchcock in a nutshell. Yeah. I love this scene. Hitchcock had to be referenced somewhere 
on this list. Well, between I, I this, just did it. You just did it. Thank just you for it. checking that box. Rear Window, Vertigo, so many great films. The Birds, you could choose from a lot of scenes. My number five is the scene from the end, the climax of The Silence of the Lambs, the great Jonathan Demme film, when Clarice is being stalked by Buffalo Bill in the basement of his house. This is the scene that starts with Jodie Foster's Clarice entering the house, and it's all her point of view, basically. We see what she looks at. The last shot before the lights go completely black, it's her seeing a decomposed body in a bathtub. And then when that cut to black happens, the next thing we see is Buffalo Bill's point of view through those green night vision goggles, and now we're looking at Clarice. And then for the next two minutes, it's this silent cat and mouse game with Bill and us, really, as the viewer being the cat. And, of course, Clarice is the mouse. And there are occasional cuts back to his face, those straight-on Demi close-ups that we're so used to, except here we're not able to see his eyes. We're looking straight on at those goggles. And mostly it's a great scene, and it's so effective. Jeff talked about the Mission Impossible scene and kind of holding your breath on behalf of the characters. That's how I feel watching this scene from The Silence of Lambs. We're in this terrifying position of hearing Clarice's terror, her breathing. And we identify with that while also being in the more comfortable position, I suppose, of being the stalker who has the advantage of sight. Demi keeps us always in that position. And then it's sound that literally triggers the climax that happens. He tries to cock a gun to shoot at her. That alerts her to his position. And throughout the whole scene, there is some score. I had to turn this up really loudly to hear it today, Michael, but for those two minutes... There's just this slight hum that I think is a Demi addition to the scene, Hmm. but it's really subtle. It's barely there. It kind of just adds to the mood of it, and then it's amplified when the tension really increases. Demi's just a master overall, certainly a master with sound and a master of not using sound. Right. I I still remember what the audience sounded like back in 91 when I saw that picture. I was out visiting a friend of mine in Seattle, and I think it was out there on a work assignment. But uh, that was – it was a peculiar mixture of – horror movie shrieks, but yes. then they realized they had to settle into this scene that was going to spin out another minute or two. Right. And as conflicted as I am about Silence of the Lambs, unlike you. Apparently. Let's not talk about it here. <laughs> another yeah, but, show. But uh, yeah, but it, that scene was, was fiendishly effective. Yes. It still is. Well, let's see how effective your number four is. Uh, there Will Be Blood. The okay. opening, opening. So long, good. long, long sequence, you know, and then really several different sequences, but we see Daniel Plainview, Daniel Day-Lewis, this is the very beginning of the 20th century, and we see Plainview down in the mine shaft, and he's just struggling against the elements in this very tight, you know, confined space, and takes a, a really beautiful and kind of frightening fall down this shaft and you know, injures himself. And we just see him kind of, you know, trying to, in a real animalistic way, just sort of like fighting the elements in his own pursuit of wealth, and none of it is conveyed in words. Nope. A lot of it is conveyed in Johnny Greenwood's music. Yes. And it kind of breaks my own rule about picking a scene for this list that has a really aggressive musical soundtrack uh, scoring going on. But but it's it's too but damn... it's so atypical. And it's too damn good yes. to ignore. Greenwood's music is great. And, and it, it just... I've, that is... It's probably my favorite film of the first 
decade of this century. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it still is, but it was at one time. And that scene is uh, really never even topped in the movie itself. I think. Yeah, he's got no one to talk to, so there's no reason for him to speak anyway. But it's really just about his actions, his determination. He's a man of few words. It's it's a wonder, right. that, that entire opening sequence and that entire film. My number four is going back to 1974, Francis Ford Coppola, a very famous silent scene. Oh, great pick. The end of the conversation, the bug hunt. Gene Hackman stars as Harry Call. He is a surveillance expert, Mm -hmm. and he's got some guilt over an incident that occurred with a previous job where some people that he was following got hurt. We don't really hear a whole lot about that, as I recall. It's been a while since I've seen the movie. Now he's been hired on another job that he has some doubts about, and he's worried that something like that may happen again. And... As this whole situation sorts itself out and he learns some things maybe he would be better off not knowing, at the end of the movie we see him, he's a jazz guy, he's just kind of playing his saxophone in his apartment, and he gets a phone call, and there's the line that is the last line of the film. Hello. We know that you know, Mr. Cole. For your own sake, don't get involved any further. We'll be listening to you. And then for the next two minutes, we see Hackman in total silence moving throughout his apartment, searching everything, turning it all upside down for a bug because on the phone they played back to him his saxophone playing. So he knows that they somehow actually (laughs) do have him wired. And when he turns up nothing initially, he gets more serious. The score actually shifts to David Shire's piano tinkling. And then there's a third shift in the scene where we now see his apartment totally decimated, which seems to be this reflection of his state of mind. It's total chaos and disarray. The music also reflects that. It's now the piano. It's not the tinkling that we're getting before, but someone seemingly raking their hands over the the strings on the piano. And there's some great subtle touches throughout the whole sequence. We know that he's got some guilt, of course, about his profession. There's an early scene where he's confessing to a priest. And in the early part of the scene, he's looking in or under everything he can find, there's this bookcase with a bunch of items on it and knickknacks. One of them's the Virgin Mary. And he stops there and he doesn't do anything. He doesn't desecrate the Virgin Mary statue in any way. But he comes back in the second part and it's the only thing left on the shelf. And he hesitates and he ponders it for a second and then just totally destroys it. Coppola there and Walter Murch, the great sound designer here on The Conversation, they amplify that because the score completely goes out at that point and we just get the sound of that statue shattering as he hits it repeatedly. So it just punctuates the the relative serenity of the scene with that noise and it really seems to be the launch of his descent, his willingness to even break that statue in that moment. He's now kind of abandoned everything. This is a movie that a lot of times gets lumped in with Watergate coming out in 1974 and and seeming so timely, this notion of surveillance. And there's an article that came out on Slate a few years back that I'll link to in our show notes if anyone wants to read it at filmspotting.net. It concludes like this, which was worse, the violation of his privacy or that he was outbugged possibly by someone better? For Coppola, quote, the tearing down of the room was synonymous with a kind of personal tearing down rooted in Harry's overwhelming guilt. In the end, it occurred to Coppola that he hadn't made a, quote, film about privacy as he had set out to do, but rather a film about responsibility. 
In that sense, finally, the conversation was not about Nixon at all, but what the age of Nixon had taken away. Mm. And I think in a lot of ways, that's why it's still a very timely movie. It's about a lack of faith in these institutions. It's about a lack of responsibility, a lack of faith in yourself as an individual and those around you collectively. It's, and it's got a real existential chill to it. It really and it, you know, it's. It, I think it holds up much better than a lot of the paranoid thrillers of the same time, yeah. Three Days of the Condor and other things, because, because Coppola cooked up the idea for the conversation years before Watergate. And there's something there's something about it that worked then. It worked, God knows it worked during the Watergate era, and it still works now because it's also, no one could play a recessive character more interestingly than Gene Hackman. So true. And the one time I interviewed Hackman way back around Hoosier's time, he was still beating himself up about not being enough of a draw to get people, a mainstream audience, to give that movie a try. Really? Yep. yep. Wow, yep. such a good actor. But, I mean, look at Coppola's year. That was the same year as Godfather Part, Part two, 2, which is better than Godfather Part 1. I mean, and the conversation may even be greater than that. So mm. that's, that's two great films. All right. Well, we've mentioned four pretty good films so far in our top five quiet scenes. And, Michael, we're ready for your number three. My number three is Steve McQueen's film 12 Years a Slave. And the, the most striking passage in it is where Chiwetel Ejiofor as... Solomon Northrup is lynched and left to hang in this plantation down in Louisiana. And it's a long, long take. He's got his rope, you know, he's got the rope around his neck and he's struggling to remain on tiptoes so he does not actually hang himself. And he's left there for an entire day. And all this time, life is going on all around him. We see the plantation slaves going about their business, trying not to care we hear the birds in the trees. There is no, and this is how the editor put it, there is no, quote, friendly cut that would let the audience off the hook. As in so many other yeah. scenes like this, uh, whether it's a slave narrative, whether it's an actual lynching scene or not, you don't, you are never, ever asked to just simply sit there calmly or as com visually. It's a calm composition, mm -hmm. middle distance shot, and we see it happen and it's going on and on. And, we, and you actually begin to think, this is not fiction. Uh, I mean, in fact, it wasn't fiction because it was a true slave narrative, but this is not a dramatization. I feel closer. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to get out of it in, in a much more urgent and, and sort of immediate way than I have ever experienced. And none of it felt exploitive or cheap or, or, or like, a, a, like a gimmick. I just simply felt like it was all these de decisions uh, combining to just l make you lean in and listen at the same time you're trying to lean out and stop it from happening. It's really something else. Yeah, it's a great pick, and you're right, a harrowing scene. My number three comes from a film that we've discussed here on the show, Michael, with you, a sacred cow discussion a few years back, I think 2012 maybe, even around the time of the release of Lincoln, we talked about Close Encounters of the Third uh, Kind. You? and Which scene? There are a lot of options, right? You could go with, among others— Barry's abduction, one of my all-time favorite Steven Spielberg scenes, and that entire sequence really works because of its mixture of sound and silence. But the culmination of that scene, I love too when that UFO finally disappears and the it's mom great. screams, great. tail off in the distance too, and it's just eerily quiet. But that's not the one I'm going with, Michael. I'm actually going with Roy's first UFO encounter, the famous sequence. Oh, I love that. Tracks. Oh, it's great. So Roy Neary, played by Richard Dreyfuss, he's out on this idyllic Midwestern night. He's an electric lineman in Indiana. He's lost out in the country, stops along these train tracks, gets his map out, and you hear the crickets chirping, and that's about it. 
Then this UFO appears behind him. We see it, but notably don't hear it. And he doesn't either. He just assumes it's a car and motions for them to go around him. Then the mailboxes start rattling. And then there's this moment, this amazing moment when the light shines on him from above. And when that happens, there's that sound effect that yeah. you just made. I, just made I think you were the sound effects guy, the Foley artist, if you will, Thank on you. that film. But then after that, there's silence. And I was turning it up today to try to hear it. And there there might be this slight hum. There's just this, this slight hum as the truck is bathed in that glow. But it otherwise feels like silence. And just that bit of quiet makes it even more otherworldly and unnatural. And then we get his breathing and the ship is over him, all that diegetic sound of everything going crazy within the truck. And then it just stops and we get silence again. There's maybe a frog, I think, that we hear, then a dog bark, and then the crickets return. Mm -hmm, And everything mm -hmm. seems to be back to normal, except, of course, things will never be normal again for Roy. And that final moment, the the, just the, the beautiful finale of that scene is he looks up and it's that huge ship now going overhead right and it too is barely making right. a sound yeah, it seems as close to silence as we could get on that night with that ship going over the top of them yeah, you could argue that's as great a two minutes as spielberg's ever made I, yeah and i think for the reasons you're absolutely saying and tellingly john williams music shuts the hell up yep you, it is not to be heard he knew, and I'm sure Spielberg had a say in this, he knew when to back off and literally mm-hmm. get out of the way. Yeah. yeah. You're number two, Michael. My number two is uh, the film that probably the fewest listeners may have taken the three hours and 21 minutes to actually watch, but Chantal Ackerman's Jean Dielman. Oh, man. I mean- I, I knew you were going to shame me with a pick, and this is it. Uh, well, this, is, this is my one, you know, highbrow pick, okay? So uh, the whole film is basically a three hour and 21 minute moment of intense solitude and isolation and in many ways quietude it's a it's it's a film that just simply rides and falls on the daily routine of a middle-aged widow as she makes the beds cooks dinner for her son and then as as the scenes develop turns the occasional trick okay so mm-hmm. she's this is how she's dealing with you know financial and maybe grief matters right the film is an absolute crafty feminist manifesto about what what can happen when you when you fall into this routine and confine a woman to this sort of life. It's deadly methodical. But then halfway through Ackerman's film, at the end of the second day of this routine, the woman puts money from a customer in a jar but does not replace the lid. Very unusual for her. The potatoes on the stove, they're overcooked. This is a crisis. A fork hits the floor, and I remember, I still remember seeing this thing for the first time in the early 80s at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis. And when that fork hit the floor, it was like this sort of like catastrophe moment. And it was just, <laughs> it was it was a killer. And I've never, I'd never experienced anything like that. And I'd never seen a film anything like it before. And I still haven't seen one since like this. And mm. I don't know, I, I think. The film you can you can see it. it's just the world's greatest thesis film, and usually films that operate on one idea and one thesis and sort of one very narrow aggressive strategy tend to lose interest for me after maybe let's say hour three goes by. But this film to me is a three hour, as I say, three hour and twenty one minute moment, and it's it I've never seen a film use a lack of human dialogue or even just sort of conventional domestic sound, uh, you know, I've never seen a film like it, period. Hmm. So 
Well, what did it's you quiet. say about Jean Dielman feminist manifesto? Yeah, was mm-hmm. that the, the phrase It's the quietest used? feminist manifesto you can imagine. Okay, well, I, I think just a great companion to that. My number two pick, Sergio Leone was up to the same, right? With feminist manifesto, yes, yes. It's, it's so good on women. <laughs> yeah, film. I'm going with the opening, the waiting for a harmonica sequence leading into the opening gunfight actually came from longtime listener, a great writer and critic, Melissa Taminga, who was also part of the film spotting advisory board. She said this scene might be too noisy, but the first that comes to mind is that opening scene oh, great. from Once Upon a Time in the West. And it is just such a joy to watch. I'm taking it from the beginning of the credits when we first see those appear. It's a seven minute sequence. And at the risk of just cataloging the noises, we get the wind is really the the most prominent actor in the scene. And then the boots on the boards as a couple of these hitmen, three men sent to meet someone getting off a train. We hear them stepping. We hear the old windmill bleeding like a dying sheep, right? The windmill's the best. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, the slow rocking chair that a character is sitting in. Then even the sound of the telegram coming through. Drips of water, a fly trapped in the barrel of the gun. Everything about it is just oddly menacing because it's so heightened and we're so attuned to every little sound and then the train appears we get the whistle that loud noise and finally the character they're waiting for does appear charles bronson's harmonica and it's sound that really does kick off all of the action because they're looking for this passenger they don't see him they start to walk away the camera shows these three men in the foreground they're facing us they've turned their backs but then harmonica starts playing the harmonica. We see him back there as the train passes before they do. They hear that sound. They turn around. And that's then the first dialogue that occurs about eight minutes into this film. You bring a horse for me? Well, looks like we're... (laughs) Looks like we're shy of one horse. (laughs) You brought too, too many. Finally, the burst of violence we've been waiting for, then the burst of noise. Followed by that windmill again. It all comes back to that windmill sound. I just saw this movie probably about 10 years ago, Michael. It was one of those real blind spots for me that film spotting listeners, when they were saying, I can't believe you haven't seen this movie, (laughs) they were trying to include it in so many top fives, and I hadn't seen it, and... I knew from those first eight, nine, ten minutes that I was going to be hooked. Am I remembering this right where Jack Elam is basically waging this sort of mini battle with the fly? Yeah. Right? Exactly. Yeah, that's a great a great detail. Uh, and and I think Jack Elam in close-up is not anybody's idea of quiet. But, no. But yet it's silent. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> no, I love that. You know, look, Tarantino's been trying to, you know, oh, trying to... Without a doubt. Trying to fill pauses the way Leone does and try to stretch things out in sort of this uh, conscious, artful way, the way he'll never... He, he just doesn't have it in him. <laughs> I, I'm here to dismiss Tarantino. Okay, okay? I'm not great. here to validate your choice, which is excellent, by the way. Okay, well, thank you. Let's hear your number one. It's so damn predictable. I couldn't. I didn't want to avoid. It's 2001: A Space Odyssey. Great. When, when Hal takes care of astronaut Frank Poole, when he yeah. when he he doesn't want to deal with him anymore. You know, he did the questioning. <laughs> the you know his paranoid side is coming out, and he just and that horrible, wonderful, tragic comic moment where he snips the 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 cord the the umbilical cord and there goes frank floating in this really 
chilling way, just floating off to his death. Mm-hmm. And the scene is long. Like Kubrick has that sadistically prolonged way about him in so many scenes like this throughout his career. But as this man soundlessly floats to kind of an awful, you know, just quiet death, uh, it's it, it's it's still the best thing in the in the part of that of that confounding picture that even if you struggle against a lot of 2001 everything to do with hal is so conventionally gripping yes you know because it is it is it is human against machine and for now you know machine it's machine seven human zero Mm -hmm. and I, I just love every aspect of the technique. There are there are flourishes in 2001 that look dated now. You can talk about the Stargate sequence. You can talk about a lot of things. But to me, it's always going to be Kubrick's final great film. I don't think he made a great film after it. And I think that scene is as great as anything in it. Well, it's hard to match up to 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's just that good of a film. It's a great pick. And I know we joked earlier, it's in the film spotting pantheon. Yes. You're exempt from I'm that. Exempt. I have you, my day pass. You get, to, you get to go ahead and include that movie. And that's only fair of me to say because, quick note, on last week's show, we got a tweet from a listener named Neil who pointed out to me that on the show with Tasha Robinson, we shared our top five movie homages, mm-hmm. a list inspired by Ready Player One. I had Oliver Stone's baton toss in the parade sequence at the beginning of Born on the Fourth of July hmm. as my number five. It's a direct reference to the Dawn of Man sequence and the oh, bones right, right. going up in the air. Right. Well, 2001, of course, in the Pantheon, means these films that we've put away, they're so good and such good choices for most top five lists that they're not eligible for these lists. I included it. So Neil called me out. I feel bad about that. Now I'm going to call myself out, Michael. I did it twice. Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, also in the Pantheon, uh. but I included its homage Tonight of the Hunter, the love and hate speech. Love and hate, that's so right. So I cheated twice last week. I certainly can't call anyone else out for cheating. Okay. Well, it, it, confession is good for the soul. It is. My number one quiet scene, probably the most obvious choice I've listed, but for good reason, just like 2001, I don't think you can talk about quiet scenes, certainly dialogue-free scenes in movies without talking about Jules Dassin's Rafifi. Oh. The extended... Heist sequence, the robbery, which is somewhere between 24 and 30 minutes, depending on who you're reading. I haven't got out the the stopwatch there. And I know for a fact that Josh feels bad about not being here for this list because I'm pretty sure it would be his number one. He actually wrote about Rafifi and this sequence in his book, Movies Are Prayers. So he can't be here. I'm going to I'm going to quote Josh, he says, often we don't realize the power of sound in cinema until it's completely taken away. One of the films that comes closest to doing this and sustains the conceit for a good 24 minutes is 1955's Rafifi, a French crime drama. The movie's centerpiece sequence is the elaborate heist of a jewelry store, which four burglars break into through the ceiling of the apartment above. As the thieves enter the dark apartment and the music fades away, our eyes and ears instantly come to attention. We're going to need them more than usual. As the camera pans the room following an ashlight beam, we both peer and listen 
listen more closely. We watch the hand signals given and try to interpret the meaning of the low, occasional whistles the thieves share, trying to follow their plan. When one of the suitcases they've brought is open, we greedily zero in on what's inside. Slippers. So they will make even less noise. From there, Rafifi settles into quiet contemplation of the process of the heist, the careful laying out of the tools needed, the chiseling through the floor, muted by cloths. One of the thieves has devised a genius idea. Once a hole in the floor has been made, an umbrella is slipped into the store below and open from the apartment above. Why? To softly catch the falling debris so it doesn't crash to the store's floor, giving them away. Time continues to pass both too slowly and too quickly as the thieves are under a strict deadline and every second is a risk. When one of them accidentally hits a key on the piano in the apartment, the others pause and dramatically frown. The sound disrupts what has become a holy place. Hmm. It's a wonder. It's staggering. Hmm. It was a sequence I discovered during a film spotting marathon back, I don't know, somewhere around 2007 or 2009, we did great heist movies. Hmm. And this one was a must watch and it certainly paid off. I saw an interview with Dassin on YouTube where the director said, these are professional guys who work in silence. Noise is an enemy. Mm -hmm. And it's as simple as that. They don't need to communicate. They can do it through their actions. They're so comfortable working together. They have such a good plan that they don't need to make any sound. And of course, in this case, they really can't afford to make any sounds. We heard Jeff Milo at the beginning of this top five talking about Mission Impossible. Yeah, just complete, yeah absolutely. Completely uh, ripping off Yeah, yeah but this in, a, sequence, in a great way, though. Yeah. In a really great way, because I also really like that scene. And I think whether or not we would consider it an homage, it makes me think of what Michael Mann does in a robbery scene, a key robbery scene in Heat mm. from 1995, I believe. Another great candidate for this list, because... They know when the heist is going to happen. It's De Niro and his crew and Pacino and his crew of cops are staked out across the street in the back of a semi truck. And they're being as quiet as they can be to not let on that the police are watching them and they're waiting for them to come out with the loot. Until they come out, they can't really bust them for anything. They can't bust them for just attempting the robbery. And a cop who's just a cop, he's not a professional, not on the level of the other professionals that man introduces us to. He accidentally goes to kind of sit down or he moves and he makes a sound. His his belt, his gun belt or something hits the back of the semi and it makes a noise. Right. And De Niro hears it and he's on to them. That's right. all he needed was to hear that one little sound. It's just like a quiet yeah. place. Yeah, it where, really you know, is. De, Niro, De Niro's the, the extraterrestrial. <laughs> he <you know>? is, <laughs> he is. And they managed to get out of there. So Heat, I think man probably paying a little bit of homage there, alluding to Rafifi. And part of that interview, Michael, we've talked about composers a little bit here and that instinct, whether to use music or not. But in that interview, the director mentions that his composer said, I'm going to score this. I'm going to give you a score. And he says, I, I don't want any sound. I, I don't need any music for it. He goes, no, I'm going to do it to save you, just just to give you a backup because I don't think it's probably going to work. And then they screened it with the music and without, and the composer <laughs> said, no music, bad music. <laughs> Even the composer <laughs> said, don't use the music, go with the version without. Yeah, and the opposite thing happened when Bernard Herrmann and Hitchcock were working on Psycho because Hitchcock said, "This is I need this to be dead quiet. Hmm. And it was a different kind of uh, of stark and effective. But then they played that music, and yeah. Hitchcock was like, uh, I couldn't have been more wrong. Hmm. So you never Those know. Those are our top five quiet scenes. 
We'd love to hear your picks. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Michael, any honorable mentions, any others that haven't come up? Well, the first one that comes to mind, because I adore the film and I love, I love this is just a, a scene I've always cherished, is in The Black Stallion, Carol Ballard's 1979 film, when Kelly Reno is the young, uh, stranded boy who's on this deserted island with the, with the uh, Arabian horse, um, from Walter Farley's book. And it's, it's a long sequence where they just simply have to kind of get to know each other in this difficult circumstance. And the boy's trying to figure out a way to communicate and befriend the horse. And it eventually comes down to him trying to feed him and then successfully feeding him and then riding him. And that film is just two or three minutes like I've never seen. And it, it was the work of a truly free filmmaker who was came out of documentaries and they were shooting on the island of Malta a long way from the studio. Nobody, <laughs> nobody was there to interfere. They shot for days and days, got all the footage they needed and then some. And uh, I don't know, you see that film now, I wish I, wish I could see it again for the first time because I saw that film when I was well into my jaded early 20s mm-hmm. and I just came out a little... You know, this sort of a gog eight-year-old, you know, and I don't like you. I don't even care about horses, you know. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I never, you know, it's, yeah. it's not, I don't, horse lore and horse movies didn't speak to me particularly, but I, I just, that scene in that film, I just, that's the one that comes to mind for a runner. So what you're saying is before next week's top five here on the show, Animal Companions in movies, I'm going to have to watch the Black Stallion. Oh, I've never re- seen it. Uh, I know Josh is a big fan. It would be oh, it'll be a real hardship sure. to have to watch a great film. Adam, <laughs> you know, I mean, be, I'm, I'm already dreading it, Michael. Check it out. Check it out, baby. <laughs> well, a couple others that I'll mention. Few have already been said. There will be blood. The opening scene that you had, Michael. No country for old men waiting in the dark in the hotel room. The Orphanage. This is a scene I've talked about a lot on this show. With the seance? It terrifies me, but the seance is a great pick, too. Really creepy, but actually I'm thinking of the one, two, three, knock at the door sequence at the end of the film. Very effective. I've talked about it before, and I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to check it out, but really just terrifies me, and I'm glad I rewatched it today in broad daylight. (laughs) It isn't all classics, though, that have some of these great uses of silence in movies, Michael. So I'll mention three from last year. They've all been touched on on the show. The end, the end credits of Call Me By Your Name, watching oh, Timothy Chalamet. lovely. No dialogue there, the crackle of the fire, and a well, great, great, song, a great you know, bit yeah. of music as well. Sufjan Stevens, I think, right. we're getting at the right. end of that. Dunkirk, the plane in the air, the plane finally out of gas, just coasting there at the end, and... The moment in The Last Jedi that so effectively uses the absence of sound that some movie theaters had to put up a sign yeah, that's right. warning people yep. that, yes, we know the sound goes out for 10 seconds. Well, no, it's longer it's, than that. It's, it's, it's not a problem. It's, it's quite long. I think it's, it's many seconds. But well, yeah, you... it is. And yet the second time I saw it, I'm like, this must feel like forever. It went by really quickly. I can't believe people actually complained about it. But it's so stark. It is so striking that yeah. it cuts out completely in this big action moment. It's a really wonderful choice by yeah, Ryan Johnson. Well, pe- people are dumb. Yeah. I, yeah. Mean, I mean, I think we should end on that note. Yeah, yeah, we're done. <laughs> Again, those are our top five quiet scenes. We'd love to hear your picks. Our email, feedback at filmspotting.net. I'd say to leave us a voicemail, but it'd have to just be silence. Heavy breathing <laughs> on the end, and really, I don't and think we want maybe those. Maybe a meaningful nod, which we won't hear. <laughs> no, we won't. You just heard our top five Quiet scenes. I mentioned that a movie from that list was going to go into the film spotting pantheon, and it is Michael Phillips' number two 
Chantel Ackermans, Jean Dielman. Josh, I don't know if you re-listened to that top five or listened, perhaps, earlier today or not in prep for this show, but I was very curious about one thing, and that was how did I handle the transition out of Michael's pick of Jean Dielman? Because, of course, back in 2018, I had not seen that film. It was a blind spot, one we recently remedied when we did our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon last year. And I am usually one who's not shy about just admitting when I have a blind spot. I'm not that embarrassed, even though Jean Dielman was maybe my number one most embarrassing blind spot. I'll cop to it. But you really heard me quickly kind of just transition right into my pick instead of acknowledging that I hadn't even seen it. And I am so grateful that we did that marathon that we saw that masterpiece, and that never again do I have to be even slightly embarrassed or ashamed that I haven't seen it, and I don't have to quickly change the topic when it comes up. Not only have I seen John Dielman, I love it, and I think it belongs in the Pantheon. Totally agree. Uh, yeah, you did You did the let's quickly move along here trick, huh? That's it. That's it. <laughs> well, we've, we've both employed that from time to time. Yes, we have. And with that, we now begin the ceremony the music that accompanies any new pick into the Pantheon. Do the honor, Sam. I'll be right here. What is this, your farewell speech? Going home. Your farewell to the troops? I'm not going home, going to Wisconsin. Have a good trip. I feel good about what we just did. I'm really glad John Dealman is now officially... In the Pantheon. I'm just looking at the Pantheon list here and seeing what the last film before John Dealman was that we put in. Because we've been doing it with Sacred Cow reviews and, mm-hmm. and the like lately. But yeah, I do think it's been a while. So this is a good one to get us back to uh, taking care of the Pantheon, being being better custodians of the Pantheon, <laughs> yes, Adam. that's the word. We do need to be better Pantheon custodians. Hopefully we are on our way. Those are our top five quiet scenes. We would love to hear your picks. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at filmspotting. Michael Phillips is at Phillips Tribune. Josh is at Larson on Film. And... That's our show, Josh. It is. If you want to head over to the show archives on filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the Film Spotting poll. What is the best movie musical of the 21st century? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend, plan B, the description after a regrettable first sexual encounter, a straight-laced high school student and her slacker best friend have 24 hours to hunt down a plan B pill in America's heartland. That's the directing debut of actress Natalie Morales. It's on Hulu. In wide release, you can see Cruella. Emma Stone is in it. Emma Thompson. A few other people in it not named Emma. I'm not, I'm not sure of that. Josh, is that the case? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Here, here's what I would ask you, and you don't have to answer now, Adam, but I bet if I, I you know, I'm, I'm actually going to put this on Twitter, so it'll be out by the time people mm. are listening to this Hit show. Me. I'm going to give you two minutes, and you come up with an origin story for Cruella DeVille. I guarantee you, in two minutes, it will be more rational, less convoluted, and more emotionally sensible than what they have concocted for this thing. Hmm. It's just, yeah. it's outrageous. I'll leave it at that. I'll give you one word right now. Why? 
why that's that's my well, only that's my only I comment. mean uh, the option wasn't to bail on the assignment adam you're you're never <laughs> gonna make it in hollywood that way sir no, no you're right cruella is in wide release and on disney plus premiere access you can also see a quiet place part two slightly more recommended by josh than me let's put it that way next week on the show our plan is to talk about christian petzold's undine and visit harlan county usa part of our seven from 76 series film spotting is produced by golden joe Dassault and sam van Halgren. without sam and golden joe this show wouldn't go our production assistant is kat sullivan thanks also to candace griffiths and the listeners of the film spotting advisory board and special thanks to everyone at wbez chicago more information is available at wbez.org for Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.